So the main pressing questions of the novel are answered soon into the second half. What major questions are left? None that I can think of. And this has left me wanting more from this book. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook. And today's podcast is all about the second half of The Offing by Benjamin Myers. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together. I'll split the book into two halves. On the second Friday of the month, I'll share my thoughts and yours on the first half of the book, maybe make a few predictions. And when we finish reading the book, I'll publish part two of the podcast in a similar vein. That'll be on the last Friday of the month. We'll decide whether it's a book we'd recommend to a friend or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible, then you can listen to the book, or you can do neither, of course, and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarising what happens in the book just for you, but be aware there will be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So this podcast is all about the second half of The Offing, and that's from chapter 7 onward. That's page 139. So we leave the first part and he's just seen a young lady with a folded cap in her lap at church. I ask the question, who is that lady? Are we going to find out? And then we see those strange mobiles again that he discovered in the shed, and they're hanging in the church. At the beginning of part two, chapter seven, he reads Romy Landau's poems and refers to the poet as a she, and I didn't realise that Romy was a female name. One poem is called The White Horses, and I'm thinking, is that a reference to the sea? Possibly. They move him deeply, and they're about the area. Robert continues to repair the shack, and Dulcie is not interested. She notices a fox den nearby and names the fox Renard, uh, which is German Reinhardt for fox. So I'm thinking, is she German? Well, certainly there's a connection with Germany. Robert says to Dulcie, I found some poems called The Offing, And Dulce explains that the strange mobile is a maiden's garland. This is for when someone dies, quote, chaste, a virgin. And she doesn't reveal why she has it. So perhaps she had an affair with a soldier, a German spy perhaps, and had a daughter who died, or maybe she had a lesbian affair. Then we find out she did meet Romy in London as an undergraduate. Romy left Germany when Hitler came to power. Dulcie left London with Romeo after she got her degree. Quote, I was getting tired of London and the same dismal faces, the dreary get-togethers, the tittle-tattle and the fuss of it, the endless parade of lords and viscounts, ignoble signs and silly little minor royals. And it was clear she was in desperate need of total relaxation because, Robert, what you have to understand is that Romy's mind ran at 200 miles an hour all the time. So Dulcie is very high society. Romy suffers a mental and physical collapse and Dulcie helps her to publish her first volume of poetry. Quote, And so she wrote the bulk of her first collection in this house, which I edited, and of course it went on to be a huge success that no one but I had envisaged because if I have a talent for one thing, Robert, it is seeing dormant potential and then awakening it. Some create, others facilitate. I am the latter, a cajoler, a prodder. So we've seen this same impact on Robert. She becomes a well-known literary figure, Romy does, but she is shunned in Germany. Her writing lost its place because of the war. Quote, The prevailing question was, what does one do when rejected at home yet hailed as a sage abroad? 
even if only fleetingly, but then just as swiftly renounced again purely because of the soil on which one happens to have been born. Romy had barely drawn breath before she found herself rejected on both sides by the grubby scrum of English critics who had praised her, but who now had to be seen to be questioning every single comma, lest they be accused of being unpatriotic, and by those over the water in her homeland, where Romy's voice had simply not been given an outlet. Her readers retreated, the publishers fell silent, and all those sycophantic contemporaries who had scrabbled to laud her work mysteriously stopped writing. Her creative fire, once raging so ferociously, had been dampened by nationalistic fervour and ignorant twats. She was stymied. Dulcie is pessimistic about progress generally. She compares grand cathedrals to modern pebble dash. But I'm thinking, I don't think their construction was particularly egalitarian. Robert reads Romy's poems and he learns through her poetry that Romy drowned herself. And this resonates very much with where the Crawdads sings because we learn a lot about Kaya through her poetry as well, messages sent through time. Quote, they were laments for herself, exit spells. Robert continues working in the hut and he begins to notice women at the beach and Dulcie inquires whether he knows what happens to Romy from the poem White Horses and Robert says yes. Dulcie says yes, she's in the offing now. Romy refers to Dulcie as, quote, honey spinner. So evidently Romy was a prolific poet and Robert says, you should publish the offing and Dulcie can't bring herself to. She's still in pain. Quote, that's what ghosts are, the raw truths we dare not face or the voices of those we have failed. We carry within us our own ghosts with which we haunt ourselves. To read the book would be to raise the dead and I'm not quite ready for that. And that's all I'll say on the matter. So the big question of this second half is, will she be able to raise the dead? Dulcie owns several cars and suggests they go for a drive and Robert is tasked with fetching the Citroen from the neighbouring farm even though he doesn't know how to drive and they motor through Moorland, through Pickering to Castle Had where they have a lovely picnic. And continuing the narrative, Robert is growing very fond of poetry and particularly John Clare, quote, agricultural worker and prophet of the soil. There's a particularly favourite poem called The Flitting, Quote, this breathless display of microcosmic poetic cartography of rabbit tracks and molehills, hawthorn hedges and orchard floors, of nightingales and crooked stars was one that I was too experiencing. He thinks of the girls at the beach and he imagines writing poems to them, but, quote, I felt a sort of illiterate emotional helplessness over the impossibility of any of this ever happening. He hears a moan of anguish coming from the cottage. At this point in the book, I feel like the main mystery of the novel is resolved. Has the resolution occurred too early? The question of who was Romy and the connection to Germany. I'm really hoping there's going to be another big question coming up. But actually, I don't think that there is. The whales were accompanied by a light coming from Dulcie's bedroom. So I'm thinking, is there someone else there? Perhaps... Romy is still alive. This is wishful thinking. Nothing as exciting as that does occur. He continues working on the shack and he later discovers what appears to be a hurt Dulcie in grass. It looks like she's got blood all over her, but actually it's just blackberry juice. She's been picking blackberries. She says that the whales were probably foxes and brushes off the question. And Dulcie asks if he will read her the offing later. 
So she's finally accepting Romy's death. I think she is. She's finally accepting the death of her lover, Romy. She prepares to hear a poem with uh, brandy and cigars. And then, again, I'm questioning what is happening in the novel. Are we waiting for Dulcie's slow acceptance of Romy's suicide? I think that's what we are, but I, I want more than that. I do want more than that. Dulcie says, you've got to find yourself a girlfriend, Robert. She finds a beehive... And here is another big part of the last part of the novel is her getting back into keeping bees. Remember, she was called the honey spinner. She was very into looking after bees and making honey. And here we have it again. Slowly, she is coming back to her bees. Quote, It is surely a sign, is it not? I rather suspect this is nature's way of subtly suggesting that I might want to get back into the old honey racket again. With your help, that is. So she'll get back into honey and find redemption. Robert is instructed in beekeeping. And she says, quote, you are an apiarist now, a beekeeper. He reads her a poem each night. And again, he carries on reflecting on nature. Dulcie remembers a trip to Naples with Romy. And I'm thinking that the only thing revealed to me, the reader, about Romy is really her fondness for drowning. Yes, I know she's very interested in writing as well. But we don't really get a full view of Romy, I don't think. Maybe that's me. What do you think? I just feel like I want to know more about Romy. In the final poem, which is called Überschwemmenstod, Drowning, Romy reveals something is hidden under the floorboards. And I'm thinking, now this is getting exciting. This is very much reminding me of Crawdads. Could it be that she isn't actually dead? Maybe there's some kind of key to something, some big shocking thing... It's actually a suicide letter to Dulcie. And it says, quote, with love, I will leave now. And at this point, Dulcie is in floods of tears. Quote, well, now I feel much better after that. Much better indeed. My pipes are cleared. I am a woman reborn. And Dulcie says, we've got to publish her poetry now. Quote, you've done the vital part. You have brought the book and me back into being. We are two midwives together and we must ensure a safe birth into the world. Good old Robert. Thank goodness he was around. Now, at this point, I'm thinking this book is feeling very dull. Where are the exciting, pressing questions we had at the end of the first half? She's more keen for Romy to have a voice than Robert. I really want Robert to thrive in some way. Continuing the narrative, Robert prepares to leave again. (laughs) Dulcie offers half of the profits of Romy's work. And she's going to go and publish her work. And instead of heading south, he heads back north and home, where he works at the pit, but not down the mine, getting coal all over him, but as a clerk in the office. It's a very cold, harsh winter, and Robert doesn't particularly like the coastline where he lives. Quote, One Sunday I walked the several miles to the sea, but was saddened to find it a grey wash, a broth of brine and coke dust. The beach, too, a gritted, blackened bank of coal containing the occasional limb of stripped bone-white driftwood, where even the shriek of the seagull sounded like warning shots to ward off strangers. Robert receives a copy of the offing in the post, alongside a fat goose as a belated Christmas present from Dulcie. And then he resigns from the clerk job, and he goes to visit her... And Dulcie has cut down the trees, obscuring the sea view. She is finally accepting Romy and the sea. She is getting there, basically, isn't she? Quote, 
and this is Dulcie speaking, I thought it was finally time to forgive the tempest of the briny deep. She's forgiving the sea, but she's not necessarily forgiving Romy. Dulcie gives Robert the shack. It is bequeathed to him in the deeds. And the offing is selling so well that Dulcie is able to indulge Robert. And Robert says, quote, Am I your project too, Dulcie? And Dulcie says, That sounds so crass, Robert. And he says, But am I? And she replies with, Helping those I feel inclined to help is what I do. Everyone could use a patron. Good old Dulcie. She gives him £400 in royalties. And again, Dulcie suggests, You know, you've got to go to university, Robert. Quote, Believe in yourself, Robert. That's all it takes. What wise words from Dulcie. And so I assume he does go to university. We don't actually find out. The book ends with him as an old man thinking about the novels he has written and about his family that he's had and also about Dulcie being a big impact on his life. So I'd recommend this book to nature lovers and those people who've got a real interest in the war. There's a few ideas in the second half that continue. The idea of education and betterment and self-improvement is an interesting one because Robert only has the key to Romy's demise because of his reading Dulcie's novels. It helps him improve his vocabulary. He's able to interpret the poems and find out that she committed suicide by going into the water, the white horses. And with war, the idea of the young being so involved is quite an interesting idea in the second half. Quote, and this is Dulcie speaking, whatever happens, just make sure you live, Robert. Go out there, see Europe at the very least while you can, because soon enough someone else will decide to try to destroy it again. And God knows they like to rope the young into their messes. So yes, I think this book would be really good for someone who likes nature. Dulcie is really this kind of grandmother figure. She does help Robert. She doesn't let him use her bathroom or have a shower, I noted, all the way through the book. But she certainly does unlock a new kind of world for him and she suggests the idea of going to university. She gives him books so that he helps his vocabulary and she also gives him the money from the royalties, from the published works of Romy. But unfortunately, in the second half, we don't have the pressing questions, the exciting questions that I think would have really helped take the book to another level. But I'd love to know what you think. I would like to chat about the next book now. So here it is. It's just arrived through the post. It's a beautiful red book. It looks like a window out onto the sun which is just partially eclipsed by the window, this lovely blue sky. Clara and the Sun, Kazuo Ishiguro, winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature. So I really enjoy reading Kazuo Ishiguro. I loved The Buried Giant, and I really loved, recently I read The Remains of the Day, and I thought it was a fantastic novel. I know nothing about this novel. Nothing. So, I'm going to read the first page and give you my first impressions. So, part one. When we were new, Rosa and I were mid-store, on the magazine's table side, and could see through more than half of the window, so we were able to watch the outside, the office workers hurrying by, the taxis, the runners, the tourists, beggar man and his dog, the lower part of the RPO building. Once we were more settled, manager allowed us to walk up to the front until we were right behind the window display, and then we could see how tall the RPO building was. 
and if we were there at just the right time, we would see the sun on his journey crossing between the building tops from our side over to the RPO building side. When I was lucky enough to see him like that, I'd lean my face forward to take in as much of his nourishment as I could. And if Rosa was with me, I'd tell her to do the same. After a minute or two, we'd have to return to our positions. And when we were new, we used to worry that because we often couldn't see the sun from mid-store, we'd grow weaker and weaker. Boy AF Rex, who was alongside us then, told us there was nothing to worry about, that the sun had ways of reaching us wherever we were. He pointed to the floorboards and said, that's the sun's pattern right there. If you're worried, you can just touch it and get strong again. There were no customers when he said this. A manager was busy arranging something up on the red shelves and I didn't want to disturb her by asking permission. So I gave Rosa a glance and when she looked back blankly, I took two steps forward, crouched down and reached out both hands to the sun's pattern on the floor. But as soon as my fingers touched it, the pattern faded and though I tried all I could, I patted the spot where it had been and when that didn't work, rubbed my hands over the floorboards. It wouldn't come back. When I stood up again... Boy, AF Rex said, Clara, that was greedy. You girl, AFs are always so greedy. Even though I was new then, it occurred to me straight away it might not have been my fault that the son had withdrawn his pattern by chance just when I'd been touching it, but Boy, AF Rex's face remained serious. Wow, one interesting beginning to the novel. So it kind of makes sense now, the cover with the partially obscured sun. Obviously, this is some kind of robot machine that needs the energy from the sun in order to recharge batteries, maybe. And so we've got that sort of slight panic as like, how am I going to get the sun? Really interesting first page of a robot having some kind of consciousness. I'm really looking forward to reading this book. I'm going to be reading up to page 156, the little black square if you're reading alongside on page 156. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. The email is bookshook at yahoo.com or you can leave a comment on the Bookshook YouTube channel. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. I look forward to discussing the first part of Clara and the Sun and that's going to be on the second Friday of July the 9th. I'll see you then. Bye. Bye.